Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We went for a walk around Lake Eola, which is in downtown Orlando, to check out the holiday lights. They've got a, quite an impressive display. Yeah, it's really pretty. They've got the fountain in the middle all lit up, and then a lot of the palm trees are wrapped in lights, and, and there's they, light archways, and it's really cool. And also the festive uh, solicitors. Of course. That are out know. there. <laughs> Lots of them. Um, people wanting you to sign petitions mm -hmm. and also wanting to get you involved in charitable organizations <laughs> and Kat had one of the best lines I ever heard. Some, this guy comes up to her, and they always ask you a question that's going to get you saying yes right. Right, right away. It's a strategy. So the guy comes up to Kat and he goes, hey, you like kids, right? And Kat says, no, not really. And it just set him right back on his heels. <laughs> and he really had nothing to say at that point. So we just kept walking. And then I thought of a great line. I always think of them about... 30 seconds too late. Right, but you really wanted the opportunity to use your lines, so we had to walk around the whole lake again yeah. in hopes that we would re-encounter the guy. Yeah, but it was a great line. If he came up to me and said, do you like kids? I was going to say, not really, I'm vegetarian. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, <laughs> he had moved on to some other location and he was not there. Yeah. But I've pocketed that one. I'll be using it at some point. I can't wait. And since we are in the holiday season, I would uh, talk about something that's very festive and, and uh, very celebratory. You would. It's a story about a guy who had two faces. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Many say that it never happened. Others aren't so sure. The story seems to have come from a 19th century book of medical oddities and was written about in an article in the Boston Sunday Post on December the 8th. 1895. The article was titled The Wonders of Modern Science, and it presented medical reports from the Royal Scientific Society. They claimed to document the existence of, quote, human freaks. 
Oh, that sounds technical. Very scientific. It does add an air of authenticity and credibility, doesn't it? The article in the Post reported the story of a guy named Edward Mondrake, or Mondake. It's spelled two different ways in several different sources. He was allegedly a handsome English nobleman who was young and intelligent and a gifted musician. But in addition to his handsome face, he had a second one on the back of his head, a condition that's known as craniopagus parasiticus. Oof. Basically, it's a parasitic twin head. Right. Um, also referred to as craniofacial duplication, which is what I'm going to call it from now on because it's easier to pronounce. Totally. Now, this is something that does occur, not just in humans, but animals as well. It's yeah. considered to be a type of conjoined twin. The first mention of craniofacial duplication uh, in literature is credited to a French surgeon named Ambrose Perre. He wrote of the condition in a manuscript which was titled Monsters and Prodigies, oh, geez. which was published in 1632. He described it as an unusual form of symmetrical conjoined twinning with a degree of severity ranging from partial to virtually complete facial and cranial duplication. CFD. CFD as the youngsters call it. Another notable example of cranial... cranial <laughs> CFD. <laughs> yeah. Get down with CFD. Oh, no. Um, <clears throat> another notable example of craniofacial duplication... CFD. Was, you know me. Was that of a man from China whose name was Cheng Tzu Ping, um, or more commonly referred to as Two-Faced Chang. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. He was, uh, he did the, you know, the freak show circuit in the 40s. Uh, he was born with two faces. The second face was to the right of his head, and it was pretty much just a mouth with teeth. Oof, somehow that's worse than a yeah. whole face. Oh, God, I know. There were traces of eyes and a nose and a scalp as well, but um, mostly just a mouth with teeth. Now, it was not connected uh, to a throat. Okay. It hadn't developed that far yet. But when Chang would open his mouth, his second mouth would open. And when he would chew, the second mouth would chew at the same time. Oh, wow. In the 1980s, when he was in his 40s, late 40s, he traveled from China to the U.S. to remove, quote, his devil face. Doctors per uh, performed surgery to remove the second face. And uh, the surgery was successful, at which point he returned to his village in China and lived out the rest of his life. Well, if he called it the devil face, I can't imagine that he had... Good feelings good about feelings it? Good feelings about that. That no. makes me sad. No. And the thing is, when a child is born with that sort of a condition, oftentimes they are ostracized right. and ridiculed. But not always. In March of 2008, an infant girl was born in Delhi, India. Her name was Lali Singh. This was an extremely rare case because she had two complete faces, two sets of eyes, two noses, two mouths. And what made it even rarer was that she survived birth and, and was able to breathe on her own. In most cultures, a child born like this, again, would be shunned. Mm. But Lali was elevated to an even higher status because villagers believed she was the reincarnation of several Hindu deities. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, she did pass away at about two months of age. And that was due to dehydration, which was believed to have stemmed from feeding issues due to her cleft palate. As strange as these stories and cases are, 
Edward Mondrakes is even stranger. Edward, as I said, he was a handsome guy. He was well-liked. He was good-natured and extremely talented, a talented musician. Yeah, I think I've seen pictures of him. Yes, there are, there are pictures on the interwebs. But even though Edward was handsome and good-looking, from the front anyway, the second face would um, demonstrate the complete opposite emotion of oh. what his first face was uh, was revealing. In other words, if he was, let's say, weeping or, or yeah. sorrowful, the face on the back would laugh and sneer. Oh my gosh. Almost always the opposite expression of what he was experiencing in his front face. That's a strange thing to say on, <laughs> yeah. on his front face. It's, as opposed to his back face. Right. Now, the face on the back of Edward's head was reported to be smaller. It occupied only part of the back of the skull, about the size of like maybe an orange or a grapefruit. Okay. Some say it appeared to be female. Reportedly, it had a pair of eyes that looked about and a mouth that opened and drooled. The face could not eat nor see. The lips of the second head were often seen moving as if jibber-jabbering about something, but there was never any audible voice, at least not to the average passerby. Was that second mouth connected to the things that would have made sound, or? Because you no. said it didn't have, like, an esophagus or anything like that. So no, that was, that was the other, that was Okay, the, I'm uh, sorry. That was Two-Faced Chang. Oh, I'm sorry. I yeah. Okay. No, yeah, he didn't have a larynx or a voice box, but um, he was able to make some sound. According to Edward, he could get very little sleep because his evil twin head would keep him up all night whispering hateful thoughts about him. And that's weird because my brain does that and I only have one face. Right. I was going to say that sounds very familiar. But can you imagine it being vocalized or nope. whispered but all if, night long? If he couldn't talk, then he can't whisper. He could make sounds with his mouth. Apparently... As the story goes, he was able to do that. Well, I think that Two-Face Edward maybe had some self-confidence issues, and maybe that was himself talking to him, because could, could be. if he can't, I mean, you can't... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how any of that worked. <laughs> well, this is how the story goes, and he was never able to sleep. Mondrake claimed that the other face never slept and whispered nonstop about things related only to hell. Mm, yeah, as you can imagine, this began to wear on him sure. a bit. Uh, the constant whispering and the negative self-talk, coupled with lack of sleep, drove Edward mad. He contacted all the local physicians he knew, all the surgeons. He begged to have them help remove the second face, but no one would agree to assist him. Again, this was, you know, the late 1800s, and probably nobody wanted to take that one on. Right. Though... I feel like from what I know about doctors at that time, I'm also surprised that no one wanted to take that on. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Although he was uh, of nobility. Oh, they, yep. They would probably not want to like be Do responsible for, for killing somebody of noble stature. Yeah. But, you know, all of the paupers, kill all the paupers you want. Right. Cut them open in a theater. And charge admission. So by the age of 23, the story goes, he was psychotic and suicidal. He decided to end his life. Oh. He left a note behind saying, quote, let this second face continue the hateful whispering in my grave. He also instructed people to destroy his remains when he was dead, or at least his head, so that it wouldn't become, you know, a medical oddity. Word started circulating. Word started circulating about the story of Edward and 
that's when the Boston Sunday Post wrote an article about him. And I was able to find an archive copy. And here's what it said. One of the weirdest as well as most melancholy stories of human deformity is that of Edward Mondrake, said to have been heir to one of the noblest peerages in England. He never claimed the title, however, and committed suicide in his 23rd year. He lived his life in complete seclusion, refusing the visits of even the members of his own family. He was a young man of fine attainments, a profound scholar, a musician of rare ability. His figure was remarkable for its grace and his face, that is to say, his natural face. It was one of a Greek god. But upon the back of his head was another face, that of a beautiful girl, lovely as a dream, hideous as a devil. The female face was a mere mask, occupying only a small portion of the posterior part of his skull, yet exhibiting every sign of intelligence of a malignant sort, however. That sounds a bit exaggerated from what I understand. <laughs> yeah. It would be seen to smile and sneer when Mondrake was weeping. His eyes would follow the movements of the spectator, and the lips would gibber without ceasing. No voice was audible, but Mondrake claims that he was kept from rest at night by the hateful whispers of his devil twin, as he called it, quote, which never sleeps but talks to me forever of such things as they only speak of in hell. No imagination can conceive the dreadful temptations it sets before me. Yeah, I would think that it would be really hard not to become incredibly depressed and Mm. obsessed with the idea of like how to get rid of it. I mean, I've had splinters before that I like freaked (laughs) out and got a knife out and was just like digging my skin off because I, I can't handle that thought that I can't take care of it. You know, I can't get rid of it. I had an ingrown uh, hair down by my junk once. Mm-hmm. That was painful. Okay. That's all. Oh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for chiming in there. <laughs> <clears throat> the article goes on to say, for some unforgiven wickedness of my forefathers, I am knit to this fiend, for a fiend it surely is. I beg and beseech you to crush it out of human semblance, even if I die for it. Such were the words of the hapless Mondrake to two of his physicians. In spite of careful watching, he managed to procure poison whereof he died, leaving a letter requesting that the demon face might be destroyed before his burial, lest it continues its dreadful whisperings in my grave. At his own request, he was interred in a waste place without stone nor legend to mark his grave. Now, it's notable that the only sources they quoted were, quote, lay sources. Okay. A year later in 1896, a guy named Walter L. Pyle and George M. Gould included that story of Edward Mondrake in their book, Anomalies and Curiosities of Medicine. Now, those are the two earliest written sources of this story. So it it seems like they kind of fed on each other. It appears as though... Um, Gould and Pyle printed the Boston Sunday Post story in their journal word for word. Mm -hmm. There is a sculpture made of wax, allegedly to be of Edward Mondrake's skull, and it showcases a head with two faces. One appears to be completely normal in structure. The other appears with an evil sneer. That may have been what what you saw. Mm. There's also a mummified head with two faces that some claim to have been that of Edward Mondrake. Both of these exhibits have been determined to be fakes. 
not real. Okay. And so, it appears, is the story of Edward Mondrake. Although the medical condition is real, right. many fact-checking sites, including Snopes, uh, USA Today, Hoaxes.com, all call the Edward Mondrake story a fake. It's important to note that they call it a hoax because there is no hard evidence that it took place. Yet, there is also no evidence that says it did not take place. And even though it probably is a hoax, it's not a, quote, internet hoax. It's a hoax that was created in the 19th century and it, by a newspaper writer, probably to increase circulation. Right. But that's what makes the story kind of fascinating to me is that uh, 125 years later, it's still a popular topic. It's, it's a meme that has gone all over the internet probably 8,000 times. Yeah. And, you know, we're still discussing this 125 years later, which begs the question, why is this story so compelling? An article in Doctor's Review says, the human with two faces story seems to call into question not only what makes us unique, but also what darkness and mystery lurks within us all. The idiom duplicity of the two-faced man, the classic Jekyll and Hyde dichotomy, as well as countless other examples throughout our mythology, medicine, and literature, literature remind us that every one of us, while different from each other, are also different from ourselves. The face we present Ooh. to the world... <laughs> Yes, the face that we present to the world is one. The other, the secret self, remains mostly hidden, knowable only to ourselves. Shit, we getting deep. Indeed, it seems we all have two faces of one kind or another. My source material, Wikipedia, Historic Mysteries, Doctor's Review, the archives of Boston Sunday Post, and Anomalies and Curiosities of Medicine by Walter L. Pyle and George M. Gould. There was a company uh, in the town that we used to live in called A Dewey Pile. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> a Dewey Pile. Yeah. I would see that on, on the sides of trucks, yeah. It just seems ill-advised. Not great marketing, really, yeah. if you're shipping, I don't know, valuables, family heirlooms. Where are you going to store that, A Dewey Pile? And now... That thing in the middle. On November 4th, 1979, 52 United States diplomats and citizens were held hostage after a group of militarized Iranian college students took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. At one point, the Iranians decided to release one hostage, and they asked all the hostages which one should be released. Almost everybody chose one particular man a man whose snoring kept them up at night. This is professional-grade storytelling. Don't try this at home, kids. This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, 
it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, If you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Box of Oddities. With Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We are loving seeing everyone's Spotify wrapped updates. Mine is mostly Yiddish folk music, I'll be honest. (laughs) Um, But so many people tagged us in their Spotify wrapped details as their number one podcast or the podcast that they listen to the most. And some of your numbers are straight up incredible. Uh, For example, Nathaniel, he listened... 55,682 minutes this year. Let me see here. Divided by 60 equals 928 hours. Wow. Divided by 24 equals. That's 38 days this year. 24 (laughs) hours a day. Yeah, we were tagged in an Instagram story by Gigi, and they listened for 55,290 minutes as well. So that's pretty incredible. That is. 
If you guys can beat that, let us know. We, we'd love to hear it. But 38 days. So, hey. Hey, a golf clap to golf you. Golf clap to you you guys. That's that's remarkable. Bonus ponies. Wow. You got a story for me, Chicky hey. Babe? All right. It's October 1918. Allied forces began the attack of Musée Argonne, the final offensive in the war about a month ago. I'm sorry, World War One. I. I could tell by the, the look on your face that you were like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so I'm sorry. We're, yeah, okay. Um, it's 1918. We're in France. It's World War One. The Musée Argonne Offensive was the largest in U.S. military history involving 1.2 million American soldiers. It's the deadliest battle in American history, resulting in over 350,000 casualties, including 28,000 German lives, 26,277 American lives, and an unknown number of French lives. Wow. Now, I assume that you know all about this. No. Because you love war. I don't love war. Charles I love, White. I love history. I love military history. Charles White Whittlesey served with the 77th Division, 308th Battalion. On October 2nd, 1918, 463 men belonging to Whittlesey's battalion and other units assigned to the 408th became surrounded by the Germans in the Argonne Forest. It's a long strip of mountainous and wild woodland in northeastern France. They were cut off behind German lines in a narrow ravine for several days without adequate supplies of food or ammunition. Parts of other units, including some men of the 307th under the command of Nelson Holderman, joined the main group, bringing the total trapped to about 550. Wow. The troops were subjected constantly to machine gun and trench mortar attacks by the very well-supplied German troops. In addition, unfortunately, the trapped men suffered from what is now called friendly fire by allied troops who didn't know their location. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always kind of um, balked at that term, friendly fire. Mm. It is, it's, it's not a good one. It's supposed to make us feel better. Is yeah, it? Yeah, you got shot, but at least it was somebody that you that you knew. <laughs> No, it's very unfortunate because they were trapped in this ravine and the Allied forces didn't know where they were. They were being bombarded from both sides. Wow. Many men were wounded and or killed. So at this point, advances in communications technology during the war were, were great. Radios, though, were still not as reliable as they are today. They were large. They were bound by delicate wires. I still don't know how radios work. It was uh, also not always possible to lay new wires quickly. And the laying of the wires was really dangerous. But it really didn't matter because the group was outside of radio range anyway. But they needed to get a message out where they were and that they needed help. Whittlesey sent runners, but they were consistently intercepted or killed by the Germans. So he resorted to pigeons. The Army Signal Corps had 600 pigeons in France. Many of them were actually gifts from British hobbyists who raised them, uh, you know, for fun. And then when the war started, they, they gave them as part of their sacrifice for their country. You know, the American ladies grew gardens and these guys gave up their birds. I think it's really sweet. Um, they had trained the birds to return home when released many miles away. 
The average homing pigeon can fly about 50 miles per hour, making them a very quick method of communications. And the birds would carry messages in specially designed leg canisters or sometimes backpacks, which I'm sorry. The idea of a little bird with a little backpack on is the cutest thing I can, <laughs> I can Wearing a little cap. <laughs> like it's it's my North Face. <laughs> it's, it's got a little canteen in there too. Um, <laughs> sorry, I can't stop thinking about what it would look like. Okay, sorry. And because they were so small and fast and adorable, they could be very difficult targets, although German machine gunners would train diligently specifically on pigeon shooting to both, you know, to spot them and kill Uh. them with their MG8s, which could fire over 500 rounds per minute. Good Lord. Is that where skeet shooting comes from? I have no idea. Okay. Just wondering. Didn't you skeet shoot off a cruise ship once? <laughs> yeah, that was that was back in the day. Back in the day where you could get hammered out of your mind at one in the afternoon and shoot a gun on a boat. <laughs> oh, those were the days. Those were the days. <laughs> uh, pigeons, unfortunately, though, were a pretty risky way of communication because if a pigeon was shot down, the message could very easily be intercepted by enemy forces. On October 4, American heavy artillery started to bombard this group. On accident, they killed nearly 30 men. They were just holding the line, just trying to not get killed by Germans. So really, the battalion didn't have much to lose. So Major Whittlesey had three pigeons with him, and he prepared a message. Many wounded, we cannot evacuate. And he released the first bird. German machine guns shot it down. Mm, That's some good shooting. A second pigeon was dispatched. Men are suffering. Can support be sent? That one, too, fell from the sky. Whittlesey called for his final bird, a British-raised black Czech pigeon named Cher Ami, which, as you know, means dear friend. You speak a little of the French. A little. Very little. Because you were Canadian for a bit there. (laughs) I was forced to learn some key words in the French vocabulary. Yes. Against my will, but nonetheless. So Major Whittlesey composed a message written on onion paper for the bird's leg canister. We are along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a large barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. (laughs) Hey, cut it out already. (laughs) Cherami was a veteran. He delivered 12 important messages within the American sector at Verdun. He took off from the ravine and was almost immediately downed by a bullet or shrapnel. Mm -hmm. The bird fluttered helplessly to the ground, as the previous two had. The soldiers, now referred to as the Lost Battalion, watched in horror, as you can imagine the kind of crushing feeling they must have experienced when they saw what might have been their last hope fall from the sky, essentially. Seconds later, several soldiers noticed something rising up from the ravine. Against all odds... Cher Ami was flying again, with the message capsule dangling from her wounded leg. What? Charging head-on into wave after wave of gunfire, making it through and disappearing into the sky. Just 25 minutes later, Cher Ami arrived back at his loft at division headquarters, about 25 miles away. He was bleeding badly. He'd been shot through the breast. He had lost an eye, as well as a leg, and had one leg hanging only by a tendon. Oh, my God. But the note was still there. 
The next day, shells started to fall on German positions, relieving pressure on the bloodied 77th, and the battle turned in America's favor. On October 8, 194 men of the Lost Battalion made it back to the American lines thanks to Cher Ami's sacrifice. That's amazing. Was was Cher Ami okay? Shockingly, yes. Cher Ami became the hero of the 77th. Army medics went to work and Cher Ami survived emergency surgery. Within a few days, she was well enough to receive France's Croix de Guerre medal, with a palm oak leaf cluster for his heroic service and military valor. American Commander General John Blackjack Pershing said, there isn't anything the United States can do too much for this bird. When the, look at you, listening to the story of the bird with your hand over your heart. I just love him. When Cher Ami recovered enough to travel, the now one-legged bird was put on a boat to the U.S. with General John J. Pershing seeing him off. And when he returned home, one of the things he had with him was a little wooden leg that one of the members of the Lost Battalion had crafted for him. Cher Ami was as well known as any human World War I hero. He served out the remainder of his enlistment at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, where he died in June 1919. They say it was related to injuries he had suffered seven months earlier. It's amazing that he lived that long. Well, this all bird's sh- a beast. All shot to hell like right? that. <laughs> all marked up. Jeremy was donated to the Smithsonian, which hired a taxidermist and put the bird on display at its museum in June 1921. Jeremy was later inducted into the Racing Pigeon Hall of Fame in 1931 and received a gold medal from the organized bodies of American pigeon fanciers in recognition of his extraordinary service during World War One. The organized what? The organized bodies of American pigeon fanciers. Okay. I've, I've never heard of them. Yeah. They, they sound like a nice group. I, I assume I'm a member because well, I am, in fact, a pigeon fancier. Yeah, you are. Also a turkey vulture fancier. Yeah. I, pretty much if you're a bird, I fancy you. We have a huge swarm of turkey vultures. I'm obsessed with these birds. That just... <laughs> I love them so much. Soar above the high rises downtown Orlando, yeah. here, here in downtown Orlando. And I guess it's the thermal drafts that... that come up that attracts them this time of year right but it's a real issue well the thing is like i had bird feeders in maine and and i love birds of all sorts so now i have bird feeders they just have a lot more like carrion in them (laughs) one of the issues that they're having is that there are so many there's like 70 80 of them and these are big three or four foot wingspan birds the problem is they're scavengers and they will grab like roadkill off the interstate mm-hmm. and then drop them on the roofs of the apartment buildings downtown. Yeah. It's annoying to some people with that and the vomit. They're so graceful. I love them. I don't want them throwing up on me. I've been thrown up on by babies enough in my life to know that I would not enjoy a turkey vulture regurgitating on me. I'd much rather have a turkey vulture <laughs> vomit on me than, <laughs> than a, a baby. Than a baby. Yeah. Wow. Well, Lupang used to throw up on me all the time. That's true. Your parrot. These birds have a four-foot wingspan. They would probably regurgitate an entire skunk. <laughs> that can't be pleasant, it's sweetie. It's legal to have skunks as pets here in Florida. Did you know that? Yeah, but keep them away from the turkey vultures. Yeah. Uh, where was I? Oh, yes. Pigeon fanciers. In November 19... 19- nope. 
In November 2019, Cher Ami became one of the first winners of the Animals in War and Peace Medal of Bravery, which was bestowed on him at a ceremony on Capitol Hill in wow. Washington, D.C. That's amazing. Pretty much any award that a bird can get, <laughs> this bird got. And well-deserved, I say. That's the story of Cherami, the pigeon that saved hundreds. What an amazing story. I'd never heard of that. Now, we've been to the Smithsonian a number of times, and mm -hmm. we've not seen... I guess they don't have everything on display all the time anyway, but I would love to see... Yeah, I don't recall seeing Cherami. My Cherry lovely as a Can't, turkey nope. vulture. Don't sing anymore because... Anything beyond that point will be in copyright violation. Okay. <laughs> Want to say thank you to our latest members of the Order of Freaks. Nicole, Isaac, Luna, and Michelle. Thank you all very much. And for those of you who have not become a patron and you would like to, you get ad-free episodes, you get them a day early. The Order of Freaks get, for example, the Live in New York show, the video of that show. We, we posted it for the patrons uh, a couple of weeks ago. Monthly Zoom meetings. Bonus episodes. Rando videos from our walks around the lake. And you get to hang out with Rick and Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Two of our founding members. Just go to theboxofoddities.com and click on the support this podcast link. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.